0: Welcome to this podcast, which this week is the fruit of a collaboration between the University Church and Magdalen College.
1: St John the Baptist's Day is marked at Magdalen by a university sermon, traditionally delivered from the stone outdoor pulpit in St John's Quadrangle. When the college was established in the mid 15th century, it took over the buildings of a hospital dedicated to St John the Baptist so the feast has always been important here. In later years there are reports of the quadrangle being decked with branches in an attempt to conjure the wilderness in which St John originally preached. The sermon was taken indoors in 1766, most probably due to fears that the practice resembled the outdoor preaching of the Methodists. The outdoor sermon was reinstated in 1896 and continues to this day. The practice of delivering university sermons also dates back to the earliest days of the University of Oxford. Each year preachers from a variety of different traditions are invited by the Vice-Chancellor to deliver sermons before the university. These sermons provide an opportunity to hear thinkers from a range of disciplines and perspectives, drawing together the life of learning, spiritual discovery and the quest for truth. We welcome Bishop Humphrey Southern, the Principal of Ripon College Cudston, as our preacher today.
0: Let us pray. Almighty God, by whose providence your servant John the Baptist, was wonderfully born and sent to prepare the way of your Son, our Saviour, by the preaching of repentance. Lead us to repent according to his preaching and, after his example, constantly to speak the truth, boldly to rebuke vice and patiently to suffer for the truth's sake. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who is alive and reigns with you, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and for ever. Amen.
2: reading from the holy gospel according to Luke. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son. Her neighbours and relatives heard that the Lord had shown his great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. On the eighth day they came to circumcise the child and they were going to name him Zechariah after his father but his mother said no he is to be called John. "'They said to her, "'None of your relatives has this name.' "'Then they began motioning to his father to find out what name he wanted to give him. "'He asked them for a writing tablet and wrote, "'His name is John.' "'And all of them were amazed. "'Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue freed, "'and he began to speak, praising God. "'Fear came over all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about throughout the entire hill country of Judea. All who heard them pondered them and said, What then will this child become? For indeed the hand of the Lord was with him. The child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day he appeared publicly to Israel. Thanks be to God. No!
3: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Children of the rectory, or of the manse, proverbially conform to one of two types. Either they are mice, pious, quiet, committed to good works, or they are tearaways, rebellious, outrageous, repudiating all that has nurtured them. I speak not as one such myself, but as one who's had a share in producing a couple. John the Baptist was in a sense, a child of the rectory, or perhaps we should say of the close, his father Zechariah being a priest of the temple, which must equate at least to some degree with being a sort of cathedral canon. And as a child of the close, or in Oxford terms, of Tomquod, John conformed rather more to the rebel-tearaway template than to the mouse model. Before he was born, his father was visited by an angel, which is an unusual circumstance, even in Tomquod. And Zechariah was struck dumb, which many might feel is not an unusual enough circumstance when it comes to the senior clergy. And then, at the time of his birth, there was a dispute over his name, and his mother asserted herself, and convention was set aside. Indeed, much was done that was, in that favourite word of our time, unprecedented. But perhaps strangest of all is that final summary verse describing his upbringing. The child grew and became strong in spirit and he was in the wilderness until the day he appeared publicly to Israel. It's an unconventional rearing for a clergy child, indeed for any child, an unconventional rearing For a child of the temple, and certainly one that contributed in John's case to a very singular outcome. Born, as we may say, into the establishment, John grew and eventually emerged as a distinctly non establishment figure. Scholarship is somewhat divided about the Baptists' probable or possible connection with the Essenes, that learned, ascetic, exclusive community that lived in constant expectation of the end time, and left evidence of their scholarship and of their devotion in the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found at Qumran, on the very edge of the Dead Sea, where the habitable universe ended and grim lifelessness began a community living at the ends of the earth, and awaiting the end of the world. Whether or not John was a member of this community, or associated with it, his witness and his message was distinctly anti-establishment, combative, apocalyptic. The Sadducees, temple folk, elite, religious, establishment types... And the Pharisees, conscious strivers after godly perfection and purity, faithfulness to the law, were to John alike vipers, along with, in Luke's account, everyone else in the crowds who came out to see him. John wins few prizes for charm in preaching. His was a message of radical challenge, based on the notion of repentance, of metanoia, of personal transformation, of deliberate turning away, indeed of rebellion from the old ways and accepted norms. It was as applicable to the tax collectors and the soldiers who were in the crowd that came to hear him as to the ordinary folk who were oppressed by them. Modelled on the great prophets of Israel's past, Elijah most obviously, John, festooned in the skins of camels and living on his bizarre diet with his defiant carelessness of kings and powers and authorities, was clearly very sharply distanced from the respectability and normality of his father and all that his father represented. This surely should be of interest to us. For many generations, and even still now for all that in some circles Christian profession is considered eccentric, irrelevant or indefensible, the Church and much of its culture has been very closely aligned with what is respectable, commendable, powerful, normal. In her quintessentially Oxford novel, *Gaudy Night, Dorothy L. Sayers speaks of no less an institution than the university sermon itself as the great Anglican compromise at its most soothing and ceremonial, the university and the Church of England kissing each other in righteousness and peace like the angels in a Botticelli nativity. It's a vignette of this event, of a religious social culture to which this event belongs, yet in which the saint whom we honour today feels like a very uncomfortable and improbable participant. Maybe there's something suggestive about the anomaly. Or maybe not, it may be contended for that privileged, leisured, complacent symbiosis that Sayers describes is surely a thing of the past. The Church is not listened to with deference or respect any more, and nor does it deserve to be. To be sure, it may still retain some vestiges of privilege or of attention, but they're mainly ceremonial and rapidly becoming quaint, or even unacceptable. Within its own discourse and reflection, the Church, it may be felt, is much more characterised in our times by anxiety than by complacency, and where it does have things to say, they're more likely to be distant from than deferential to what is being said in government or seats of privilege or power, and just in case we miss that message, they are consciously labelled as prophetic. Maybe after all, the instinct, if not the culture or mode of address of the Baptist is more influential than may have been thought. In the end, of course, it's a matter of opinion, so there's scope for endless delightful diversion and dispute as we reflect on the question. But our celebration of John the Baptist, whether characterised by ironic ruefulness or hopeful defiance or something in between, can be seen to be set in the context of circumstances and a sweep of history that gives rise to precisely this kind of reflection. It also, and even more insistently, is this year set in the context of upheaval dare I, in my turn, use the word unprecedented in this context. Turmoil. If not the end of the world at the ends of the earth, the pandemic-induced paralysis of so much of our life that is known and familiar, the frantic speculation about what will be the new normal and whether we will recognise it when it is established, and the critical questions that we've been looking at about values and especially the value of human life, whether the lives of patients in hospitals or of black lives in communities where they've been habitually overlooked and underheeded for so long. All of this wondering and worrying is the context for our celebration of the Baptist today. So what will? Repentance, metanoia, turning around, the very heart of his proclamation, look like in this context. It may well be that the systems and habits that have shaped us, the world of the close and the quad, the reasonable and the evolved, will prove resilient and capable of recovering and, again, holding sway. Or alternatively, maybe it will be that the spirit of the one raised in the wilderness will be appropriate and suggestive for a new wilderness normality, where the old idols and certainties must fall and disturbing, unconventional promises be brought to fulfilment. Amen.
1: The St John Baptist Day sermon is accompanied by a formal bidding prayer. We are invited to pray for the Church and for the world, in particular to pray for all places of religious and useful learning, and to remember benefactors of the University of Oxford and of Magdalen College. But we also continue to hold in our thoughts and prayers all those affected by the current pandemic particularly those who are sick and those who have lost loved ones. These prayers are led by Eden Smith and Catherine King, both students at Magdalen.
4: Let us pray for Christ's Holy Catholic Church, that is, for the whole congregation of Christian people dispersed throughout the whole world, and especially for the Church of England, and herein for the Queen's Most Excellent Majesty, our Sovereign Lady Elizabeth II, by the grace of God, of the United Kingdom, of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and of her other realms and territories, Queen, Head of the Commonwealth, Defender of the Faith, also for Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, Charles, Prince of Wales, and all the royal family.
5: Let us also pray for the ministers of God's holy word and sacraments, archbishops and bishops, as well as other pastors and curates, for the Queen's most honourable council, for the High Court of Parliament, and for all the nobility and magistrates of this realm, that all and every of these, in their several callings, may serve truly and diligently to the glory of God and the edifying and well-governing of his people, remembering the account that they must make.
4: Also let us pray for the whole commons of the realm, That they may live in true faith and fear of God, in dutiful obedience to the Queen and in brotherly charity, one to another. And that there may never be wanting a succession of persons duly qualified for the service of God in church and state. Let us implore his especial blessing on all places of religious and useful learning, particularly on our universities and here in Oxford for the Right Honourable Lord Patton of Barnes, our Chancellor, for the Vice-Chancellor, for the doctors, the proctors, and all heads of colleges and halls with their respective societies. More particularly, we are bound to pray for the good estate of the Cathedral Church of Christ, and therein for the very Reverend the Dean, the Canons, the students, and all other members of that royal, ancient, and religious foundation, that here, and in all places, specially set apart for God's honour and service, true religion and sound learning may forever flourish and abound.
5: To these our prayers, let us add unfeigned praises for mercies already received, for our creation, preservation and all the blessings of this life, particularly for the advantages afforded in this place by the munificence of founders and benefactors such as William of Wainfleet, Bishop of Winchester, and sometime Lord High Chancellor of England, sole and munificent founder of St Mary Magdalen College. But above all, ye shall praise God for his inestimable love in the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ, for the means of grace and for the hope of glory.
4: Finally, Let us praise God for all those who are departed out of this life in the faith of Christ and pray that we may have grace to direct our lives after their good example, that, this life ended, we may be made partakers with them of the glorious resurrection in the life everlasting. Through Jesus Christ, our blessed Lord and Saviour.
1: We continue in prayer as we listen to John Shepherd's setting of the Lord's Prayer.
0: peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and the love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, be upon you and remain with you all